welcome to Cancer Talk, the podcast that explores the potential of integrative medicine in cancer care. Integrative medicine is an inclusive approach that combines the full resources of conventional medicine with a broad range of lifestyle and complementary approaches to address the multiple needs of those with cancer in body, in mind and in spirit. Each episode of Cancer Talk, oncologist Dr. Penny Kekayoglu and I, Robin Daly of Yes to Life, will be building bridges between conventional medicine and a host of other therapies and practices with the aim of improving the care of people with cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Penny. I'm a clinical oncologist in the National Health Service and clinical director, and I treat patients with cancer using different modalities, including chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and holistic approaches. I welcome you all to Cancer Talk, and um, I'm looking forward to joining more specialists to talk about integrative medicine. Hello, I'm Robin Daly, founder and chairman of Yes to Life, the UK charity helping people with cancer to learn about and use integrative medicine. Each episode of Cancer Talk, Robin and I will be jointly hosting guest specialists from the world of integrative medicine with the aim of exploring the potential of improving the health of patients through their particular skills and experiences. Hi Penny, great to be back on Cancer Talk. Hi Robin, great to see you. So... Fantastic guest today, Professor Robert Thomas, the legendary Professor Robert Thomas, um, who has been doing so much for the whole arena of lifestyle and cancer. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today, all to do with uh, women post breast cancer treatment and uh, the, the long term effects and what we can do about them. So, uh, Rob, big welcome to you. Thank you very much. I hope I can live up to your glowing introduction. <laughs> Right. So um, these kind of long term problems, how common an issue are they? Is it a big deal? Uh, this happened with many people. Uh, yes, they, they are a big deal and they're very common. Um, you know, many people talk about the acute effects of uh, recovering from surgery, um, chemotherapy, etc. Uh, but we first got interested. Well, we've always been interested as a unit. We've been specialising in breast cancer as a team for you know for over 20 years and we listen to patients so we we are aware but we formally looked at it about three years ago when we we did a, a survey of 800 women and we asked them what were the most common side effects uh, about a, a year after their initial treatments and we presented that in an organization called mask in adelaide and we were quite surprised to see that 55% of women said they were significantly suffering from joint pains, uh, just under 50% hot flushes was an issue, uh, mood, weight gain. And a lot of this could be just because they were menopausal anyway, but a lot was brought on by uh, premature men menopause following chemotherapy or the hormonal type drugs, either making them postmenopausal or aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen. So, you know, it's a big problem, uh, more than half women, mm. the women, and they felt it was affecting, you know, significantly affecting their daily activities and uh, quality of life, etc. 
Wow. So a really important area to, to investigate. Mm. Uh, it's the sort of area where pharmaceuticals have had a bit of a go, but I don't think there's been a lot of successes there. I think, uh, you know, basically it's a gap where the support's just not there. And so how successful overall do you make uh, lifestyle interventions? Are they really able to help significantly? Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up... Uh you know, pharmaceuticals, obviously, we, you know, we're doctors, and we, we, we would look to license drugs, if they were there. Uh, we know for hot flushes, we've got benaflexane and uh, progesterones, etc. But, you know, a lot of women don't want to go on to antidepressants, um, painkillers for joint pains, well, you know, non steroidals have long term consequences of heart disease, renal failure and indigestion. Um, and, you know, for fatigue and weight gain, it, it's difficult. So I think this is a, a, a sort of issue, which is where lifestyle really lends itself and is actually quite successful in many mm, ways. Great. Very interesting, Rob. Um, I treat patients with breast cancer as well, and mm. I have noticed that more and more are coming forward um, when they start on endocrine treatment in particular with those symptoms. And I often enter into conversations whether we continue with treatment or not. Mm. And it's, it's so important that you say that lifestyle can actually be effective and these patients can continue their treatment. What, what, what do you advise? What can they do? Um, Penny, that, that's actually a really good point um, because it's not just about um, you know, how they feel. Uh, as you say, um, well, there's a number of studies to, that up to 15% of women actually stop their endocrine treatment, and some might be getting up to a 10% mm -hmm. benefit from it. So it's, uh, you know, it's quite concerning that you know they, their cancer could come back as well. So, um, well, what you know, first of all, we've done a number of literature researches and, and investigated lifestyle studies from around the world. <clears throat> we we looked at first of all what women do for themselves and where the research lies. Um, First of all, um, you know, it's quite obvious that, you know, being overweight, smoking, uh, having a sedentary lifestyle does increase the risk of these symptoms. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, interventions for those, of course, if you have an overweight woman and she's willing to embark on a weight loss program, that's, uh, you know, that, that's something we would encourage. If you have women who, uh, you know, don't exercise as part of the weight loss program, we would refer them to a 12-week um, a, a exercise referral scheme or, or a local exercise group, which has been a bit more difficult with, with COVID, but um, uh, hopefully that, that will start again. Um, we were looking at some dietary measures to see if um, you could intervene with, with dietary changes or even um, supplements. Um, many women do take supplements for hot flushes, as you know. Uh, most of them, um, if they're not, if they're if they're estrogenic, uh, then you sort of worry about them with with women with breast cancer, and the, those have seen some success. But the ones which should probably work are the ones you probably shouldn't be taking. Um, mm -hmm. So we we've linked up with a, a a Japanese breast cancer survival group actually, and um, we did some work with them for the last two years looking. Uh, they were they were interviewing their their women what they felt was working for them and they looked through the usual things such as uh, um, soya based supplements which we actually wouldn't advise um, we advise soya foods but not supplements because they're too mm -hmm. estrogenic 
but you know the usual things they were looking at chondroitin for joint pains glucosamine fish oils and the one which they had most um, benefit from actually was was a, a food supplement which we originally evaluated in the in UK called pommy tea which was actually contained uh, turmeric um, broccoli pomegranate and tea in relatively higher doses but it was specifically designed not to have phytoestrogenic properties so we were quite happy with that and then they went on to do a formal uh, study in just over 50 patients so it's not a big study and it wasn't randomized so you have to bear that in mind and they found um, that uh, up to about two months um, 64 percent of the women said they got some benefit in all three main symptoms, arthritis, hot flushes, and mood. And the, the, the level of benefit wasn't fantastic. It was about 15 to 20%, um, but most of them said that that was relevant to them. Um, we didn't, it wasn't enough people to see whether, you know, they, they stopped their hormones or not. Um, so it's quite encouraging. And we've been looking at those ingredients and, and thinking, of how they could have uh, improved these symptoms. And we've got some theories for that. Um, so nevertheless, uh, we, we wrote it up and we published that paper recently. And, um, you know, we, it's not a massive surprise because we did the original POMITI study five years ago in men and, and it is becoming known it helps joint pains and of course turmeric's in it which is so it seems to help everything uh, so we're not surprised but we've been getting emails for, for years from people saying it's helped their hot flushes helped their joints and helped their mood so uh, it's nice to see it sort of formally reported now that's great result and i guess um being able to function better that would enable people to also be able to exercise more isn't it because the last thing you want when you've got painful joints and you don't feel particularly in your high you don't exercise and it's a vicious circle almost isn't it exactly i'm glad you've mentioned that because we were trying to sort of come up with a you know a, a single theory of why these ingredients or these foods could work but i think you've hit the nail on the head it's multifactorial and a lot of um holistic type uh, or lifestyle interventions are multifactorial. You're right. I mean, it is well known that turmeric tea and broccoli and those ingredients have anti-inflammatory properties. Um, they have, they enhance uh, oxidative stress enzymes. Uh, they actually are known to improve uh, cartilage regeneration. So by encouraging chondrocytes to make more cartilage. So they're not an instant painkiller. They actually help with the underlying health of the joint. So if you can help the joint pains, as you say, you're more likely to feel, um, you know, in a better mood because you're mm -hmm. not in discomfort, to go out and exercise, to exercise for longer, to recover quicker. I mean, many athletes are taking these foods now to enhance their training and recover quicker. So yeah, so it, I'm sure being able to exercise is one of the um, one of the theories of how they work. The other thing is these ingredients and others, you know, is uh, not just those ingredients, healthy ingredients like that. They improve. They act as prebiotics, um, so they improve gut health, and in, therefore, as a consequence, improve gut integrity. So therefore, you know, you, 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 you keep the nutrients you want uh, and a better gut integrity, you don't get uh, toxins leaking into your bloodstream and setting up uh, a, a systemic inflammation, which as you know, 
can affect the brain, you know, the classic brain gut pathway, which can cause uh, fatigue. And, you know, it appears aggravate hot flashes as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Absolutely, very important. Very much all tied together. Um, just wanted to put in from the patient perspective how encouraging it is to hear that the starting point for all these things is actually asking patients. Yes. And, uh, that's not always been the case, has it? Um, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's surprising. I was interested in the aromatase inhibitors way back about 10 years ago when I did a trial of two different aromatase inhibitors where we, we asked the patients a patient preference endpoint. Uh, you know, we gave them, we said, look, you can record all this. And we had formal questionnaires, which are all validated. But one question we said is, well, which one would you prefer? And um, it was sort of shouted upon. I mean, people were, were sort of standing up and, and screaming from their seats in ASCO. How dare you ask a patient? You know, uh, you should have a validate. <laughs> but, it, but since then, I'm really pleased it's been creeping in. And there's quite a few studies where they add a little patient preference questionnaire. Uh, and they've subsequently some have been validated now and, and it is a formal endpoint but uh, nevertheless it is it is you know that's what we're here for is to to learn off patients and uh, you know see what mm. they're going through absolutely yeah very good to hear so um uh be interested to hear about uh, other kind of lifestyle interventions which you feel are worth looking at for people who are having these long-term uh, side effects uh, which are really they're suffering from reduced life uh, enjoyment you know in a major way yeah we had a, a long in-depth last of these podcasts with uh, dr sam watts on relationship to nature and and rhythms uh, the uh, circadian rhythms this kind of cyclical stuff and um i wonder well, how much you think of those whether there's something that you take into account in your advice to people yes i mean i've got a whole chapter of on circadian rhythm in my in my book and it's uh, you know there's lots of things which can enhance it uh, so uh, there's there's good evidence that it's it's good for your levels of inflammation um some people go to far as far as to say, you know, it helps uh, suppress cancer cell growth. But I mean, there's more research we need to do on that. But, um, you know, really important. So, uh, you know, just on a practical basis, you know, black out your curtains at night, um, try to get to bed, you know, uh, the same sort of time each night, um, uh, you know, it's, um, try to dim, dim the lights later in the evening, change to an orange light. Um, I think, you know, that's important. And also exercising, you know, try to exercise in the morning when it's light. So you're, you're, you're generally when you're exercising, you're outside. Uh, so you're, you're, you're triggering your sort of switch on mode and don't sort of exercise late at night, which can happen. I mean, in my local gym, not I've been there for a while, is, is open 24 hours. So you suddenly you see people no. you know, at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm sure that's not good, to be honest. You should be sort of calming down and letting your body switch off at that point. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's all connected to your biorhythms, your hormones, so, you know, I've not seen a lot of data on circadian rhythm and, and hot flushes, but I've seen it in relation to mood, um, which is, as you say, you know, if you're in a better mood, you're more likely to exercise and, and all sorts of things. So, yes, I, I, I think circadian rhythm is, is very important. In terms of supplements, um, you know, it is interesting looking at the melatonin data. Um, there are issues with the quality of many melatonin supplements, so there's, not, <laughs> there's none in it. Um, 
I'm, mm. I'm quite interested in melatonin-rich foods, you know, such as cherries, uh, mushrooms, even ginger. Um, so, you know, it is probably a good idea in the evening to have some uh, melatonin-rich foods and you can Google which ones they are. Uh, you probably know mm. as much as me on, on this, but, uh, you know, after your dinner to have a, uh, you know, to have a little boost would be good. In fact, they, they're probably the melatonin supplements I would recommend aren't actually extracted melatonin. They're just things like, uh, you know, concentrated cherry or uh, Marie Lucelli and things like that, which have, are naturally rich in, in melatonin. It's mm. mm. interesting stuff. You mentioned about exercise and usually it's done outside. And what advice would you give patients who are shielding, for example, um, or cannot go outside? What can they do? Um, well, I'm not sure if this is you know, against shielding rules, but if you're exercising outside <laughs> nowhere near anyone else, I think that's pretty safe. Um, you, know, um, you know, maybe you have to go earlier in the morning or, um, you know, certainly not in, a, in rush hour if you live in the centre of, of a big city or something. So, you know, I, I think you can sneak outside. If you've got a garden, of course, it, it's even better. Um, it, the shame with that is, of course, it's nice to exercise with a friend or in a group because you get more of a social interaction. And we know that mood, for example, does go up more if you're in a group exercise than a, than a solitary exercise. Um, but even, even so, you know, try to get out. Um, you know, if you worry, don't go near other people. Um, it, it's what do you enjoy, isn't it? I mean, we, we like the 12-week programme, which is free, which is available throughout the country. Again, it's not, a, not currently available with lockdown, but post-lockdown, we like that. And that's a good start. Um, um, you know, many private gyms, if you can afford it, are offering uh, personal trainers, which uh, some have been are, are qualified in level four in exercise rehabilitation for cancer. That's always good because they're more sensitive to the needs of people who've been through cancer treatment, you know, looking out for things like peripheral neuropathy and proximal weakness, etc. Uh, so if you can afford a personal trainer, that'd be great. Uh, but it's ultimately what you enjoy doing, you know. Uh, um, uh, there was a very good talk from Rob Newton, who we, we work together on a number of projects. He's in Australia. And he's done some great work on what type of exercise works best. And he strongly emphasizes, you know, adding some resistance, some light weights, as well as just walking. And patients who say, well, I, I you know, I walk every day, to be honest, um, that's good to prevent blood clots and perhaps a little bit of mood. But you've really got to introduce some something which gets you a bit hot and sweaty and uh you know preferably a bit of weights as well because that does trigger um you know reduction in in uh, inflammatory cytokines and other biochemical pathways which are almost certainly um will improve cancer as well but also you know your hormonal status and your biorhythms and things very useful mm -hmm. and that people can do that at home and there are so many online yeah. applications now that you can actually follow absolutely Mm. Yeah, it always struck me that the uh, exercising with friends in nature is a great sort of triple whammy because you know you've got three of the targets that are spoken about for improving all of these things particularly the mental state um all at once in a rather enjoyable form and the third one being vitamin d is that what you're going to say well no i was talking about <laughs> exercise the social part 
uh, as well as the being in nature. But oh. you've just brought in the fourth one now. Okay. Let's go. All <laughs> uh, oh, right, I wasn't. Uh, that's a good link, I suppose. Yes, of course. Um, you know, I'm I'm really glad that vitamin D is becoming more talked about as evidence is coming through. Um, you know, we all know that in Britain we have a a, a large uh, percentage of the population who have suboptimal levels of vitamin D. Um, you know, not just the Asian population, but you know, there's um, you know, especially especially I suppose with lockdown, it's even worse. Um, and and low vitamin D is not just about um, healthy bones, although that's also very important, especially in breast cancer patients who have been made prematurely postmenopausal. Um, we know that low vitamin D is related to a lower mood. We know it could be related to increased joint problems. And we know that in some tumors like colorectal tumors, that it's linked to a lower response to some chemotherapy agents and a higher, higher relapse rate. Now, we, what we don't know so well, that if you give everyone a very strong vitamin D supplement, you're gonna correct these things. You, you will correct the bone health issue, but the other things I just mentioned. Uh, and the trials, you know, they, they haven't really been conducted. There are some trials, but they, you know, they haven't mentioned, uh, measured baseline vitamin D levels and all sorts of things. So the conclusions are, uh, well, they're not conclusive. The findings are not conclusive. So, but gen, you know, common sense tells us that if you're not getting regular sun or you, you can't get regular sun is to take an, I would definitely recommend a vitamin D3 supplement in especially in the winter months, uh, because there's no trial which shows it does any harm, unlike other vitamins like vitamin A and vitamin E. There's no trials it does any harm. So I think it's a very sensible approach. And I was actually quite staggered last May when you know the, the, the panel of three on TV talking about COVID said there's no evidence for vitamin D, sort of positively discouraging people to take it when there's lots of circumstantial evidence that if you have a low vitamin D, your inflammatory pathways are suboptimal. In fact, it's one of the few vitamins where um, manufacturers can put on the packet supports a healthy immune right. system. You know, um, so, you know, I, it was a, a completely inappropriate thing to say. You know, it, 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 they could have just not mentioned it rather than say, don't take it. And then, of course, mm. when the King Study app showed quite clearly and many other studies showed quite clearly that people with low vitamin d had a higher risk of covid higher risk of complications of covid a slower recovery they suddenly u-turn told everyone to prescribe it like it's going out of fashion but that is such a typical sort of government u-turn which could have been easily avoided by just someone with mm. some common sense saying look you know vitamin d is important try to get some sun if you think you're low take a supplement there's more evidence to come later in the year, rather than just saying, don't take it. Surely. Yeah. Rob, you recently spoke at our integrative oncology event. And one of the questions I remember from the Q&A from your session is, what do you do at summer months? Do you recommend vitamin D all year through? Um, ideally, you'd like to sort of measure it, wouldn't you? And um, and, and individualize the, the advice. But uh, I don't know about you, Penny, but I can't order a vitamin D test um, unless there's sort of problems with the calcium or, or issues, issues like that. 
Um, and, you know, it's only a spot check anyway. You could be low one month and high the next month. Um, you know, it depends on the individual. I mean, I've got I've got friends who, who literally never go in the sun, you know, um, and I, yeah, I would even in the summer. So I would say no. Um, you know, many of our patients, I'm sure you're the same, you know, men who play golf, they say, oh, I go into the sun. But you look at their skin and it's full of solar keratoses and sort of pre-malignant lesions and you're sort of a bit reluctant to tell those men to go into the sun because they just array they just they just their hands and face get get uh, mm -hmm. get um you know too much sun so I, I do encourage people to perhaps go in the garden you know late afternoon take your shirt off lie down and just have tw 20 minutes of sun on on the, the bits of the body which don't normally get exposed right. and if they're not willing to do that yes i would say yeah take a take a supplement um, and then it comes down to you know which one we know that d3 is probably a bit more bioactive um you know some people you know it's not absorbed very well and i think chris parker did a, a study from the marsden and showed that even up to 2000 international units weren't changing blood levels of vitamin d that much even though the rda is about eight four to eight hundred so also in my view vitamin d is also very much dependent on gut health that if you have poor gut health i don't think it's being absorbed that well um so i think um you know if you were to take a vitamin d um you know there's some good products out there you don't have to take an expensive one um but um you know one combined with a probiotic makes a very very good sense especially if you feel you've got maybe issues with gut health um and you know, if you can, if you're worried, try to see if your GP will will measure uh, the D uh, the the D D three. Makes sense. Mm. Is there um, any thoughts about the relationship between vitamin D and mood? Is it an indirect thing where it's affecting other things, which then have an effect on your mood, or is there something direct about it? Is it known? Um, I've, we've tried to look into this and no, it's, it's, to be honest, it's not really known. We know there's a correlation, uh, whereas mm -hmm. it, whether it's cause, causative is, is, is difficult to prove, but there's certainly a correlation. Um, you, know, we, we, you know, we know that people with low vitamin D, uh, you know, there's various factors not going into the sun, so they may not get, the, you know, they may have problems with a circadian rhythm, which affects mood. We know that um, women who are overweight, tend to have lower vitamin D levels. So they need to take more vitamin D. And that's something to do with the fact it's a fat soluble vitamin and it sort of gets stored in, in, in the adipose tissue. Um, you know, and, and again, it's linked to joint pains and, and gut problems and all sorts of issues which can affect the, the mood. So there's no sort of um, direct biochemical pathway, which I'm aware of, unless Penny is, is more aware of that um but you know it's a link which is established hmm. okay um i wonder can we talk more about foods directly kind of foods that are supportive foods that are definitely to be avoided with for people who are suffering these long-term conditions um yeah so if, if we're sticking to the theme of menopausal type side effects for well, for, for women with, with cancer or women in general or, or you know, women post-breast cancer specifically, uh, which, you know, the top three, as I said, are, you know, joint pains, hot flushes, mood changes, 
and, and fatigue actually as a consequence. So if you look to see what foods could affect those three things. Now, in terms of the avoid list, um, yeah. uh, you know, foods which, you know, upset gut health. We know processed sugar um, can feed the pro-inflammatory bacteria in your gut, um, otherwise known as the firmicutes or that category. We know that those class of bacteria prefer processed sugar as their food source, where, where, where otherwise uh, the bacteroidetes, which is the anti-inflammatory bacteria or the healthy, the healthy bacteria, they actually prefer breakdown products of, of polyphenols. And the polyphenols are, as you know, they're the things in food which give it its color, its taste and its smell. So herbs, spices, vegetables, fruit, that sort of thing. So when you have processed sugar, you are, um, you're sort of feeding the unhealthy bacteria. So you're deteriorating gut health, which then, you know, chain reaction leads to everything else. We also know that sugar is absorbed quickly. So, uh, and you get a release of insulin and then you know, 20 minutes, half an hour later, you get a sort of slight hypo, depending on your, if you're pre-diabetic or not and the level of it, but encourage you to eat more. So you end up sort of grazing all day long and going in and out and very fluctuating blood sugars. And we know that that can affect mood as well. Uh, whereas, whereas if you have slow release carbohydrates, you're more likely to have a more steady sugar level which doesn't lead to these fluctuations of, you know, feeling hungry or feeling tired. So that's uh, my take on sugar. Um, other foods which can affect joints. There's a lot of talk about citrus and things like that. I'm not too convinced. Uh, if mm -hmm. patients, you know, again, you, you need to ask the patients and try to get them to experiment with which foods uh, affect them or not. Um, you know, certainly, high meat intake is known to affect joint discomfort um mm. process heavily processed foods with lots of added chemicals like preservatives colors pesticides you know they they are putting a load on your body which is and creating an inflammation if absorbed so you know that i would try to get people to avoid heavily processed foods and you know try to go for organic if if they can not essential but optimal in many cases um so that's the other thing so um smoking is a sort of no-brainer um which we've we've talked about um in terms of plus foods i've already mentioned the fruit and veg and herbs and spices um because they improve gut health they contain these chemicals called polyphenols or phytochemicals which have been shown to have a direct effect on mood and inflammation actually there's lots of studies coming through now that these foods as well as improving gut health can directly affect mood and inflammation um, so as many of those as possible and a lot more than people think you know a lot of people say i, I have a salad every other day doc you know my take is you should, with every meal you should be having something colorful or or, or tasty so you know um you know, even if you're, you know, try to have a bit of salad with every meal or a bit of vegetables or a bit of fruit. And if, if not, you know, take, take, a, take a supplement, which has got polyphenols in, if you, if, you, if you don't think you're managing that. Is it true, Rob, that variety matters? So let's say if I eat one type of uh, green vegetables every day, I'm not okay, am I? Do they have a synergistic effect? I does, think so. Yeah? 
yeah, I definitely think so. Um, because if you know, we did a lot of um, background evidence for the for the original POMI T study, and more recently for the Phyto V study for COVID, looking at the amount of chemicals within uh, phytochemicals within these separate foods. Um, I mean, there are hundreds of them within each food. So if it, you know, even, even if you're only eating, say, broccoli, you are getting a lot of different phytochemicals, mind you. And that's why I would never recommend an extracted polyphenol from a food like a lycopene or so forth. Um, but we know that some of the phytochemicals work by reducing inflammation. Others work by um, improving gut health. Others might have a, a direct anti-inflammatory or anti-proliferative approach. So you're right, the more you diversify, the more likely you are to um, you know, get the full benefits of that whole spectrum. Some of my patients mm. make shakes in the morning of everything. Mm. And that enables to have um, all the vegetables they need to have during the day. Because sometimes it's difficult with work, isn't it? When people work a lot of hours during the day. Um, yes, it, it, I mean, just be careful with, with putting too much fruit in the smoothies, because although whole fruit is very slowly absorbed and, and uh, it contains about 14% sugar, uh, we know that when you start liquidizing it, you can absorb the sugar a bit quicker. Uh, so as they say in California, you, you juice your vegetables and, uh, and, um, and, and eat your fruit. Um, but it is tricky. I mean, I, I've, uh, be, I've I don't know if it was the, the goalpost of change, but my blood pressure, you know, is a, is a bit, diastolic's approaching 80 and the systolic is just approaching 30. So it's sort of borderline. So I, I wasn't going to rush into tablets. So I've started making uh, some celery and ginger uh, with a bit of lemon uh, and apple um, drinks. Um, and it's brought it down nicely. There's lots of evidence for those sort of foods, have, you know, probably through the nitrates and causing a little bit of vasodilation, uh, helping early, early sort of non particularly risky blood pressure. I'm not saying take these instead of the pills mm -hmm. if you've been recommended by your doctor, but sure. certainly in the early stages. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's quite tricky, you know, it's tricky to have to buy the vegetables, you have to make it, they go off. Um, you know, you can perhaps freeze it, but, uh, you know, it, it is hard. So, it, it, um, you know, you have to be quite motivated compared to just taking a pill. And that's why most people just turn to pills. Um, mm. and, and that's also why I'm quite interested in good quality supplements because, uh, and, and I do now take a, a, a celery extract on the days I haven't got time to make the, make the smoothies. So you can integrate mm. them into a diet, but you obviously must never have them instead of a diet. Mm -hmm. very helpful interesting you're you're dead right there it's a lot of work uh you know the times i've been on a, a sort of juice fast you're at it all the time <laughs> in the kitchen um but uh it's interesting to hear what you have to say about uh the fact there are supplements which are available uh, as your own pommy tea which are actually made from foods and so as supplements, they're they're really just concentrated food rather than an extraction of any kind. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean that's a um, that's a good point. And and the press, you know, every now and again they wheel out, you know, supplements cause cancer, supplements are bad. But you yeah. you know you can't put them all into one group. I I totally agree. If you're just getting foods and concentrating them and allowing people to perhaps take them with the breakfast and lunch 
which is times they perhaps wouldn't take, you know, turmeric or, or pomegranate, especially on a daily basis. Um, so you're allowing a higher intake of these foods with a supplement. You're also having a more regular intake throughout the day, such as with your, you know, you're starting the day with them. Um, so, you know, they, they, they certainly have a role, but, um, you know, where, the, where you've got to be careful of is, as Penny just uh, quite rightly said, you know, you don't want to be taking a single chemical out because, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the complex nature of all the chemicals working together is important. But you still get that with a supplement because most good quality ones are, I don't know, just basically free dried and concentrated. And some of them have, you know, the whole juice extracted in a process, but it's still the whole juice. It's not... It's not an individual chemical. Some actually measure an individual chemical as a candidate of mm -hmm. uh, a reference candidate, but it doesn't mean we, they're just containing that. So even in Pomitea and the Phyto V, they, they say, oh, it contains this much um, of the ACCG, but it doesn't mean it only contains that. It just means it's at that quality. So, you know, you've got to be careful about the quality. They're not, you know, there's not a, a particularly well-pleased um, uh, area. Um, so, you know, it's, it's tricky. Um, the other thing is, is many patients are, are taking multivitamins with vitamin A and vitamin E. And there's a lot of data that those extracted vitamins, uh, can actually do more harm than good if you've got normal levels, because, uh, they actually suppress the antioxidant system because they're direct antioxidants. So, um, you know, there is some truth in it that some supplements could do more harm than good. I wouldn't put vitamin D or even vitamin C in that class, mind you. Mm -hmm. You mm. mentioned about the Phyto-V study. Is that your recent paper? Um, it's not published yet, Penny. Um, okay. Um, basically, when we had to stop doing trials after COVID, um, as you know, we're, we've been always interested in lifestyle studies. So we thought, well, maybe we should turn our attention to um, looking at diet or looking at lifestyle to help COVID patients. So uh, the first thing we did was look at the last SARS outbreak and what evidence was published then. And actually, there was quite a lot, which was hardly talked about, um, uh, certainly in the beginning of last year. We know that uh, certain phytochemical rich foods have um, improved the well-being of the patient through improving gut health and reducing inflammation, reducing excess ox oxidative stress, all of which when you catch COVID are very important because of this excess inflammation which can cause the cytokine storm and stuff like that. But there's also lots of animal data that these uh, phytochemicals can reduce viral replication, reduce shredding, um, through direct chemical pathways. Um, again, all that's based on the, on the SARS, not on COVID itself, although it's a very similar virus. Um, so the, you know, the obvious thing was to do a, a double-blind randomized trial of you know, the best bet based on the SARS data. So actually, camel mild tea came up pretty high. Obviously, you know, turmeric is up there. You can't do anything without turmeric these days. Uh, mm -hmm. pomegranate was in there but citrus bioflavones came out really high so not vitamin c although that's probably good as well but citrus bioflavones which are the bioflavones within citrus fruits 
which have the antiviral effects. Um, so it's just a basically a straightforward randomization between a supplement containing all those things, which was made specifically in a lab in, in Oxford for the study. And initially we started off with randomizing a probiotic with it, which again was made by that lab with a whole series of, of um, people putting input into what probiotics would work best. And we have to say we did air more towards safety. So um, instead of getting a very complicated, elaborate probiotic, we just, we just gave five different strains of lactobacillus, which again have been shown particularly the lactobacillus, to have antiviral properties and improved gut health, but are unlikely to cause any problems. And obviously it needs to be mixed with a prebiotic inulin and stuff like that. But anyway, the bottom line is we, we did randomize the probiotic, but nobody entered the study. Uh, after three months of trying of getting through ethics, patients, you know, obviously the ones interested in being in the study were saying, well, I'm not going to enter the study unless I get the probiotics. So we had to do a, a trial amendment and we then gave probiotics to everybody, um, which the patients were happy with. That's fine. You have to be pragmatic in these situations. And we just randomized the, the other supplement, the, phyto, uh, the phytochemical supplement. Um, so we're, we're actually just writing up the data of the before and after whether you know, the open phase of the study to see if there's uh, improvements and we're, we're going to present that first in the Food Matters Live conference in a couple of weeks. So we're very pleased with that data. Um, and we, we're still yet to analyze whether the intervention with the, the food the capsule had any influence. Mm -hmm. We split the trial up into early and late COVID. Uh, we, we use the definition of two months post-infection, although I know NICE have come out with saying probably three months is classic post-COVID, but uh, long, long COVID syndrome. But nevertheless, we split the patients up in those uh, with basically a, an early infection and ones with struggling with symptoms after two months. Um, and many of the patients actually in the, in the last six months have been people who've been struggling for well over six months with chronic mm -hmm. symptoms. So we've got over half the patients with, you know, classic long COVID and, and the other half with it within an earlier group. So we're looking at those two groups separately. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm very looking forward to the results, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, I think there's one thing that's really come out of this pandemic is the, the, the news that uh, the difference between the effect that COVID is having on people is down to their fundamental health status in the first place when they caught it. And, uh, and lifestyle obviously plays an enormous part in that um how much evidence do you think it's going to take before governments will start giving advice to the whole population uh on the basis of actually really reducing the effects of a pandemic uh on you know lifestyle advice um well fair play to boris johnson he did he did advocate exercise didn't he and he was seen jogging around the park so i have to give him credit where it's due right um but um uh, yes, I mean, you know, if you look at the New York data from last April, you know, it was it was um, um, only 99 patients, although very tragic in themselves. Uh, so that was 0.9% um, of the people who died of the 16,000 people who died in the New York sort of peak didn't have a comorbidity. Now, you know, that's yeah. high blood pressure, being overweight. 
um, or any other sort of seriousness. Now, of course, not all of those are lifestyle related. You can be unlucky and you can, you can, you know, there's a minority who've done nothing wrong and they've lived the life of an angel. So we can't blame people for catching COVID or any chronic disease, but there is a correlation, which is, you know, you have to address. Um, so, you know, I wrote on my blog, you know, keephealthy.com, you know, 10 tips, lifestyle tips to, to help reduce the risk of COVID. And they're the usual things, you know, which we've all talked about, improving gut health, keeping your weight down, making sure you get enough vitamin D, all those things. Now, yeah, I agree with you. Greater emphasis should have been put on that. Although, you know, I'm not a population doctor, you know, I, I suspect there's some other motive, like, you know, you didn't want to give people a get out from isolating or, you know, having the vaccine and stuff like that. Um, so there's a way of putting it to say, look, you can help yourself, but you still got to obey the rules and go for the vaccine. But, you know, and I, I think people are more sensible than you give credit for. I think that's sensible advice. Right. right. But, uh, but in this case, you're actually looking at things uh, to positively influence the effect of the, uh, of the COVID on patients, uh, almost regardless of their condition at the start. The, this combination, if the results are as good as you, your face leads me to believe, uh, this is about actually taking steps in the, the same way as you might take any other medicine uh, in the face of uh, an infection. Um Yes, you know, at the end of the day, we learned this from the POMI T study that we could say to people, take these foods and, you know, mm. probably about 5% would take them and then they would stop taking them after a few months. Um, you know, people do like taking, you know, many, we know that many people like the convenience of a supplement. It's the same if you catch COVID, you know, it's a bit more difficult because they feel dreadful. They've got, um, you know, fatigue, they've got bowel problems. You know, to ask them to sort of go for a run and take some different foods is, is difficult. It's a big call. So to have a yeah. convenience of a food pill, you know, is worth looking at. And that's that was the hypothesis for the for the intervention. You know, and I have to say, um, you know, it's it's been a difficult study because most people in in you know you interview have got a long history of you know indigestion, bowel problems. Uh, you know, having colonoscopies or endoscopies, and we're, you know, we're, we're writing that up, you know, it, 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 independent of the results, we're writing up the profile of symptoms, the demographics of the group, and, you know, we're independently looking at, you know, obviously, whether they've got a history of indigestion against how long their COVID symptoms lasted for. So we're learning a lot right. from this study. Um, but it is, you know, it, many people are attracted to say, look, you can just go off and carry on what you're doing as best as you can, but take this food pill as well. Uh, and particularly the probiotic. And we, you know, we use this probiotic called Your Gut Plus, which was made specifically for the study. It's, it's open, so I'm allowed to say the name because uh, that wasn't blind. And, um, you know, I've been very impressed with with that intervention because many people are saying, look, I've been struggling with indigestion for a long time, been struggling with bloating. It's made worse with COVID. And as soon as they've started taking it, you know, within, you know, it's not overnight, but within three or four weeks, they really notice they, their bowels are more regular. They're coming off the anti-antacids. You know, they're feeling more comfortably generally. And we know that from probiotics. And, you know, we were particularly encouraged with the, the King's App study, which was published a month ago, which showed very clearly that um, 
people who took probiotics and vitamin D for that matter had a lower risk of catching COVID. Um, mm. Just on that mode, and that is why we've now moved on to a, a vaccine study as well. And that's just going through ethics at the moment. So we're, we're using the same probiotic, the Orgut Plus, plus vitamin D, and we're recording exercise levels. We're not doing an exercise intervention, but we're recording exercise and measuring that. And Roche have kindly donated uh, antibody titers, um, uh, objective antibody titers, which we're measuring at eight weeks and three months post vaccine. Uh, and we're going to that the purpose of that study is to see whether if you're going to go for your vaccine, as well as exercising, because we know that that can help, uh, whether mm -hmm. taking an intervention of a probiotic and a vitamin D will improve your antibody titers, not just at eight weeks, but at three and four months later. Mm -hmm. And now we're quite excited by that. Very exciting. Wow. Mm. Well, roll on the day when, uh, you know, we're hearing on the BBC News that they're advising people to take more vitamin D or to improve their gut health, uh, you know, because there's a pandemic around. Uh, it'd be great as far as I'm concerned. There's um, a technical term came out in the middle of your discussion there of viruses, which was shredding. Meant nothing to me. What's shredding? Um, yeah, I mean, probably like the rest of us, we knew very little about viruses apart from they give us a nasty cold three times a year. Um, but so we did a lot of background reading. We've got some virologists in, in Bedford University in Coventry, which you kindly educated me. But basically, there's, uh, there's, penetra you know, there's penetration of the virus into the cells. Uh, mm -hmm. Then you get various biochemical pathways, which gets the strip of DNA or RNA in the case of uh, COVID, it put into your DNA, which you kindly replicate for them. Uh, and then, so that's it, that's proliferation of the, of the DNA or the virus or RNA. Uh, and then it shreds out of the cell into, back into, you know, the, the, the virus capsule and then spreads. So um, various targeted agents try to either go for the shredding or the proliferation um, replication so it's um yeah foods seem to affect all three pathways so the the theory is and there's been a number of studies around the world actually if you look on the nci website of giving an intervention to people with the virus to prevent spread to family members or colleagues um mm. so there's a study in granada in spain for example giving probiotics to health workers who've had covid to see if that will reduce this. And they're recording the number of new cases in family members and colleagues. They've not published that and it's recruiting quite well. Um, mm. You know, that that's also important because of course, if there's less virus around, you're less likely to spread it. Yeah. That's it's a good type of research to do, isn't it? When you give an intervention to everyone, as you described. Um, what else is there on the research agenda, do you think? What, what do we need to study more to prove that um, it works? Well, the, the vaccine study is our priority. We think we're going to miss, well, there'll still be vaccines coming over the next couple of months, but we think it's more likely in this current time frame that we'll pick up the vaccines, which we're going to have to have a third vaccine. I don't know if you're aware of this, probably in the winter as mm -hmm. a boost. So that's yeah. the, that's, we're probably going to hit that. Um, we've, we, we were involved in the GAP4 
study looking uh, interval gap four study organized by Rob Newton in and uh, Stacy Kenfield from California and Rob Newton from Australia um, where they're looking at a, a quite intense exercise regime for men with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, I have to say that's proving difficult. Um, mm. They have to go to the gym in the university and be plugged into a sort of mask and have all sorts of tests every few minutes. So it's, 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 they've only recruited 100 patients. We're trying around the world for the last two years, so we're trying to help with that. In terms yeah. of our homegrown studies, um, we've actually got because I'm in my with other hat, I'm actually a, a, a visiting professor of sports medicine in the local university. Of course, that's we haven't done very much on that. Um, and there's a lot of athletes are taking supplements, and we're looking at uh, a, a combination of things, including um, uh, a, a mushroom uh, called cordyceps. Uh, which is particularly good as an anti-inflammatory and enhancer of um, oxidative enzymes. And it's, uh, it helps athletes, we think, recover quicker um, and to, um, well, they, they sort of, they, they, they recover quicker, their joints recover quicker and they, they can train better. It also reduces um, oxidation. So when, I don't know if you know, when you exercise, the first thing you do is release lots of free radicals. Mm -hmm. So actually right. unaccustomed exercise can be counterproductive, especially mm -hmm. in the el elderly or people who are not used to exercise. So it's good to have these foods. And as you know, many athletes and cyclists, they take, you know, beetroot and pomegranate and cherries and blackberries and things. And it's a good reason for it. Um, so we're doing a study with those sort of foods. It's a combination of the things I've just mentioned, press, Cordyceps, when this is with a doctor called uh, uh, Dr. DeMore from Nottingham University, sort of the mm -hmm. world expert in cordyceps. And you could say, well, you know, so what? Why is an oncologist getting involved in that? Well, actually, it's one of the first studies which is going to involve keen athletes, so cyclists or not professional athletes, but keen, fit young people mm -hmm. and people with cancer who are struggling to exercise because of their joint problems. So there's gonna be, there's going to be a two-phase part of the study. So the athletes will get information whether they could take these foods to improve performance and improve, but the, the patients or the patients post-breast cancer or prostate cancer, which is the cohort, will know whether taking something pre-exercise could improve their recovery and prevent joint problems and then allow them to exercise. So the end point in, for them is, whether it improves exercise levels and then mm -hmm. subsequently mood. So that's quite exciting. That was actually almost put through ethics 18 months ago. and had to be stopped because um, of COVID. And we're rather hoping we'll get that back into, into ethics. Um, well, we'll see, hopefully in the next three or four months. That's excellent news. Um, yeah, fantastic legacy of uh, work you've done in this, uh, this way of actually pushing through these food quality trials, which we all need. So uh, brilliant. Yeah, well, I, I, as you say, I'm, I'm quite pragmatic. I like to get, you know, do things, have something you can hold. I mean, it's lovely to just say we'll do an, a study on food and, and, and exercise and meditation, but it's, it's, it's much harder to do that. It's easier to do a study when you've got a capsule or a, or a specific endpoint. So those are the ones I'm concentrating on just because mm -hmm. it, you know, it's easier to get through and, and, and study. Yeah. 
Well, they all add up and uh, yeah, it's very valuable data. All right. So look, I think we will uh, wrap it up about now. It's been a, a great novel experience being outnumbered by oncologists today. Um, <laughs> enjoyed that. And uh, yeah, more, more of it, please. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on today, Rob. And thank, you, uh, thank you, Penny, for and it's nice to see another oncologist who's uh, interested in lifestyle. I think there's more coming through, isn't there? Absolutely. But yeah. you are the legend. So thank yeah. you for joining. Okay. Take care. Bye now. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cancer Talk. Do subscribe and look out for the next edition of our podcast. And if you have friends and colleagues interested in the development of UK cancer care, do pass on the details of Cancer Talk. Goodbye.